everybody understood what they were supposed to do, and we went to the Super Bowl. That's a pretty amazing experience to have as your second year in the NFL. But it really showed me the value of a team and, and how important it is for everybody on the team to do their part and how important it is for everybody to realize that every person on the team has an important role to play, which rings true in business today, just like it did in the NFL for me 40 years ago. Hi, I'm Mary Mock, Head of Distribution for Touchstone Investments. Our guest today is Blake Moore, President and Chief Executive Officer of Touchstone. We'll be talking about his career journey that took him from the NFL to the investment world. Let's get started with your background. Where did you grow up? Hi, Mary. Well, I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, although I was born in Durham, North Carolina and lived there for all of six weeks while my dad finished and graduated from law school at Duke. So a uh, longtime Duke Devil fan. And what did your parents do for a living? My dad was a lawyer for his whole life. Uh, I like to say a real lawyer. He was a trial attorney for 45 years at the same firm in Chattanooga, Tennessee. My mom uh, basically did everything else. She was uh, she took care of her three boys. I was the oldest and I had two younger brothers and she was about as committed a mom as you could ever, ever hope for or or want. Can you talk a little bit on where you went to college, maybe how and, and why you chose that school in Ohio and, and how that really impacted the way you started your career? Well, sure. I, I mean, the, <laughs> the true story is my dad always wanted me to go to a very good liberal arts college. And growing up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, there aren't a whole lot in that area. So we looked at the College of Worcester. I looked at uh, Colby College. looked at uh, Bowdoin up in Maine. And uh, College of Worcester is in the family, uh, going all the way back to my great-grandfather. So at the end of the day, the College of Worcester got the nod. The side story to that is of the three colleges I applied to, it's the only one that didn't require an essay. So it was, uh, it was my number one choice anyway. But I was... Uh, uh, I was fourth generation from our family to go there. My great-grandfather played on the first Worcester Fighting Scots football team in 1889. And I have a picture, uh, I don't have it in this office, but I have a picture uh, at home of that team of good-looking young men from over 100 years ago uh, playing in their first, uh, playing in their, in the first college of Worcester football game. I love Worcester. Obviously, I met uh, Cindy, my wife, there, and uh, that was the most important thing that happened to me at college. But a lot of other great things happened there. Grew up, learned to think, and uh, really got a great education and uh, loved my time there. So I've, I've served on the board there now since 2008, so I've been able to give back to the college that I love so much uh, for the past, uh, wow, almost 15 years now. And I know that um, just from reading your book, you know, some of the, the hard work that you put in while you were there in the summer. Um, I know that just in general, I know you to be a really a very highly disciplined person, which I respect. And so maybe along those same lines, what role would you say discipline has played in your life, both on and off the field? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I, I talked about my mom a little bit. Um, I would, uh, she was probably, even though my dad was the trial attorney, I would say my mom was the most competitive person in our family uh, by a long shot. And, uh, you know, I was the oldest and I was her, her son and she wanted me to do well in everything. 
So <laughs> I say this in only the most loving, and my, my mom died a few years ago, but I say this in only the most loving way, but uh, she was very competitive and wanted to make sure that I doing as well as I could and everything I tried to do. So that meant hard work. That meant uh, doing things the right way. That meant uh, if you didn't get it right the first time, you did it until you did. Just a couple of funny stories I tell about my mom. I'm old enough so that back in those days, you actually had to type your papers on with a real typewriter and real paper. And uh, I didn't know how to type, but my mom knew how to type. And so uh, she, she would type my papers for me when that was required in high school. And I would give her my essay or whatever it was that she was going to type. But she would not correct any mistake I made in my paper. So if I misspelled a word in my paper, she typed it, and I know it killed her to do it, but she typed it in a misspelled way because it was my fault and my mistake, and I had to learn from it. So uh, that, that's just an example. But, but she was, uh, you know, she brought us up thinking that we could, we could do anything we wanted to do, and that, that's how we were brought up, and that's how I always approach things. Yeah, self-discipline and, and understanding how to work hard and, and what it means to do that day in and day out. You know, discipline is really a lot about just being willing to do things that other people aren't willing to do. It's the hard stuff. And there are a lot of things in life that are, that, <laughs> that are easy. There are a lot of things in life that are hard, and uh, many people won't do those things consistently. But I think it leads to success long term. We all know that you played professional football, first for the Bengals and then for the Packers. Um, maybe what three things or what things in general did you learn while you were there? What were the most valuable things that, that you took away with you in terms of core beliefs? Yeah, boy, so many things I learned and so many experiences to take away from that, from that time of my life. So if I had to pick three, one we've talked about a bit, but it's just the discipline and hard work that's required to be successful at that level. I was a free agent. Uh, and when I say free agent, I was a free agent back in the days when there were 12 rounds in the draft. So I, I literally, I was, I was cannon fodder. Sign extra bodies, bring them into camp to get beaten up, and we'll, we'll, we'll let them go later. So when I signed with the Bengals, I was the longest of the long shots coming from a small college, not drafted. And I, I was put in the mix with people that had so much more talent, skill, size, strength than I had. The one thing I had, discipline and the willingness to work as hard or harder than everybody out there. That's all I had. That and I could, I could, I could remember the plays better than some people. <laughs> so, you know, I can't tell you how many people I played against or, or, or practiced against that were clearly better athletes or better football players than I, than I was. But I was willing to do the hard work. I was willing to put in the, uh, the extra time and effort to, uh, to be successful. So that hard work and discipline. Second thing that I you know, really learned at, at that elite level, the importance of uh, being a real team and understanding what your role is. Everybody has a role. Everybody's got to play that role and do it the, to the best of their ability if you're going to be successful. You might have one or two superstars on the team, but if you don't have uh, nine or ten other guys that are really pulling their weight and doing what they're supposed to do, you're just not going to be successful as a team. That really played itself out. My second year, we had it's basically the same group of people uh, the second year that we had my rookie year, but we really came together as a team that second year. Everybody understood what they were supposed to do, and we went to the Super Bowl. So, uh, you know, that, that's, a, that's a pretty amazing experience to have as your second year in the NFL. But it really showed me the value of a team and, and how important it is for everybody on the team to do their part and how important it is for everybody to realize that every person on the team has an important role to play. 
um, which rings true in business uh, today, just like it did in the NFL for me, you know, 40 years ago. And then I guess the last thing, and this really is important in the business that I'm in now, it's one of the reasons I love the asset management business so much. It's highly competitive. But one of the things you realize, you know, I was there I was a rookie, a free agent, and I, I walked into uh, practice on the last cutdown day. Um, and you, you knew you were going to walk in the door and you're either going to get a pink slip, meaning you're, you're fired or you're going to make the team. And you walk in and, I, and I, I made the team and you have this amazing sense of relief uh, flow over and you say, wow, I made it. But then you pretty quickly realize next year and the year after that and the year after that, you have to do it all over again. You have to make the team every single year. And you know what? If you don't get better every single year, you're not making the team. And so, you know, that was a a real statement to me on if you just stay the same or if you're average, if you're not willing to put in the the work to get better every single year at what you're doing or what you want to do, you're going to get left in the dust because someone else is going to come and take your place. And you look at the business that I've been in for the last 25 years, the asset management business, which I love, it's in a different way, but equally as competitive as the NFL because you are absolutely measured by your performance, by what you do every single day. What you did last year doesn't matter. It's what you do this year. And if you don't get better, if you're not better than the competition in the asset management business, you're fired. And if you're just average in the asset management business, you don't get any business. So I've, uh, I really think about that a lot. And you'll hear me say from time to time, you'll probably get sick of it uh, the longer you know me, that uh, you know being average over time loses. You can't just be average. We have to be better than that. Yeah, I mean, even in our industry from a portfolio management perspective, you know, being a strong performer is really just a baseline competency. It's what our distribution partners, it's what our advisors and what their end clients should expect from us. Um, It's really about being a top performer beyond that, both from a product perspective, but then also very true having grown up in a sales environment. Uh, what you're saying very much resonates with the the plight of the wholesaler and of salespeople in general. Uh, we're only as good as our, our last day's work. And to be constantly driving towards something that is a, a moving target is uh, a challenge that requires a lot of intrinsic motivation. And it requires really high achieving, really bright people, which are wonderful to work with and sometimes you know, can be a challenge to manage, but still great people. Well, yeah, it's good you say that, Mary, because people ask me, you know, why I like this business so much. And it it is the people I get to work with. I get to work with bright, competitive, driven, collegial people every single day I come to work. And uh, there are not a whole lot of businesses like that. I've worked in other businesses. I've seen other businesses. So I, I, I love it. You know, I love the people I get to work with every day. And so you went from the Bengals to the Packers, uh, Forrest Gregg being your coach both times and uh, growing up in Cincinnati and and loving the Bengals. What I know of Forrest Gregg is that he also was uh, very fond of intelligent players. And you talked about your ability to learn the plays and do well. And I think your discipline and your ability to comprehend the plays and to be such a strong thinker, you know, I wonder if that had an impact on your desire to want to keep playing for him. And maybe how that that landed you in in um, Green Bay as well. Well, I, I you know when I, when the Bengals let me go, and it was the same year that Forrest had gone up to uh, Green Bay. Um, I worked out for other teams, uh, but he and I had he and I had a good connection. He knew he knew what he was going to get if uh, if he if he bought, brought Blake Moore into the on the team. He wasn't getting an All Pro center or offensive lineman, but he was getting somebody that believed in his philosophy, understood what he was trying to get done. 
and would uh, bring a certain attitude uh, to practice and to the game every single day. So we saw eye to eye there. Forrest had, I have a lot of respect for him. He had really high uh, expectations and demands of his players. And I didn't have any problem with that. He let you know exactly where he was coming from. And I enjoyed playing in that, in that environment and understood how it could bring success for a team. So uh, I, really, I, I really valued playing for him my six years. It was a great experience. And then you made the tough decision to exit the NFL and to enter Harvard Law School after you chose to defer your entry for a year. Well, well, let's see. so let's give credit where credit's due. I had, I had, uh, and, and that usually ends up with my wife. I had been accepted to Duke Law School. Remember, I mentioned my I was born in Durham. My dad went to Duke Law School, so I had applied there out of Worcester and, and gotten into Duke, and then had basically they allowed me to have a permanent deferral there for while I was playing in the NFL. Uh, so that was great. And then once I decided that my career was winding down and I was going to take the next step and, and retire and, and go to, and actually go to law school. My wife, my Cindy said, you should apply to Harvard. I said, Harvard, they're not going to let me in. You know, I got in the Dukes, but Michigan already turned me down and Stanford turned me down. She said, nah, but your you know, your resume looks different now because you've been playing football and you're going to look different than everybody else. So I said, oh, sure. Okay. I'll apply. Well, you know, sure enough, they screwed up my application with somebody else's let me in. We, uh, when we went out there to visit, I still felt I had another year to play with Green Bay, and, and I asked them if they would give me a deferral for a year while I finished up my career, and they did, and that worked out great. So I played one more year with the Packers and then made the difficult decision to, to retire, but it was the right thing to do from a family standpoint, move on, get, get ready for the next career, and, uh, and, and go to law school. So, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was quite a transition, moving from Green Bay to Boston and Cambridge, and, you know, we... I, Back in those days, people talk about all the money the football players make these days. Uh, we didn't make that kind of money back then, let me assure you. So we moved from a, a large four-bedroom uh, house in the Midwest to a tiny little uh, two-and-a-half-bedroom, uh, one-bathroom condo in the middle of Cambridge, and I rode my bicycle to law school every day. So it was uh, quite a difference in uh, lifestyle there during that transition. But it was great. You know, kids were growing, we were starting to get a little older and our daughter started kindergarten while I was in law school. We loved Cambridge for the three years we lived there, but quite a transition for sure. I bet. And so understanding your, your, your father's career path, but it still begs the question, why law school for you? Yeah, well, it's funny. Yeah, that's a good question. I never really wanted to be a lawyer like my dad. Um, I, I, I went to law school because at the time, and this ended up being true, but I felt it would give me options uh, for my career later on. So I knew I'd, I'd go to law school and I would get out and probably be a lawyer for a while. But I didn't envision myself being the kind of lawyer my dad was, a litigator, a trial attorney for 45 years. Um, and in fact, I, I took much more of a business approach in law school, took more business classes, uh, corporate finance, corporate tax. And then when I started, when I did get out and practice law out in San Diego for the first few years of my, my second career, I didn't get a real job till I was 31, Mary, which was great. I, uh, I focused more on the business side, transactional, M&A, um, securities, SEC type work. And so I was able to do a fair amount of that in San Diego before I, I literally took a cold call from a recruiter that happened to be looking for somebody to become a general counsel for an asset management firm. 
I had had no experience with asset management or asset management firms as an attorney. But, you know, remember I told you the story about my mom and teaching us that we could do anything we, we wanted to do. I said, I can do that job. You sh- I should be the one you're, uh, you're bringing in to interview for that job. And one thing led to another. And uh, I became the first general counsel for uh, Nicholas Applegate back in 1993. And that was my uh, entree into the asset management world uh, with, a, at the time, a little boutique firm, growth equity asset management firm in San Diego, California. It was great. Only about, about 130 employees. We had $10 billion of assets under management in the early 90s and uh, growth equity. And away we went. It was, it was a lot of fun. We grew that firm to about... 40 or $50 billion over the next 10 years before we sold ourselves to Allianz. And then you were um, really successful at Allianz as well. Do you want to talk a little bit or would you talk a little bit about your experiences at Allianz and maybe some of your subsequent leadership positions? But, but before you do that, I will say one of my observations about you is that you do pick up on things very quickly sometimes uh, a challenge to keep up with you. And so I can imagine that your mother was right, that really anything that you have a passion for, I mean, I'm not so sure about, you know, uh, rocket science and, and cold surgery, but beyond that, I will say, um, I think she was she was right in instilling that in you because that confidence has been really beneficial. And certainly you've, uh, you've had some stellar well, success in everything that you've done. You know, just jump in and jump in and start swimming, um, and uh, and and do it with confidence. Keep your head above the water. After we sold ourselves to Allianz, things at Nicholas Applegate didn't go that well. So I was I was there for the rise, and I was there for the fall. And uh, let me tell you, it's a lot more fun growing a business than it is uh, shrinking a business. And so as we as Nicholas Applegate, literally, we we went from four, mid forty billions in assets to under twenty in uh, about two years. And that was that was some of the hardest work I've ever done because um, not only is your business uh, shrinking and 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 you're just not doing as well financially, but the impact it had on all the people and the people I had worked with and the friends and you know we had to go through layoffs and shutting divisions down. It was it was painful, and you learn a lot from an experience like that. So, but as part of the result of that was that we had. Too much leadership at Nicholas Applegate. We didn't need the senior leadership at Nicholas Applegate. I had I had quit being an attorney f- uh, for many years. I had just become part of the senior leadership team, overseeing different areas of the firm. And an opportunity came up in another part of Allianz uh, to uh, uh, lead the uh, U.S. retail and mutual fund businesses, which were based out of New York. And I, <laughs> I'll never forget. Uh, I've been living in Cincinnati. I've been living in San Diego for uh, 15 years. Raised our kids there. We loved it. And uh, my boss at the time, uh, Marna Whittington, came in to me and said, uh, you know, we have this we have this unique opportunity. Uh, we need an interim CEO to go run the, these two business, these businesses in uh, New York City because they were actually having some SEC trouble with the uh, former CEO. And we need somebody with your background and stability, let's call it. Uh, to go out and uh, step in and become the interim CEO. And I said, well, that sounds interesting. And she said, "And oh, yeah, and I need your answer uh, in about three days. So I, I, ba- I basically, I either called or went home and, and talked to my wife, again, the hero of the story, and uh, said, and my kids were, our kids were pretty much in college. Uh, they were both in college by then. And uh, her response was, let's go. You know, just like that. Let's go. San Diego to New York City. She'd never lived in New York City. I'd never lived in New York City. 
And there we were, literally weeks later, plopped into the middle of a brand new city, a brand new, you know, the Northeast. She grew up in Minnesota. I grew up in Tennessee and uh, new adventure. And I was uh, leading, I was leading, you know, within a few weeks, I was leading one of the largest uh, wholesale distribution teams in our business because at that time, PIMCO was part of our U.S. retail business. It was ran, it was run as one business, PIMCO and Allianz. So my distribution team was responsible for selling all the retail PIMCO funds. And we had one of the largest wholesaling uh, groups uh, in the business at the time. And this was, this was in the uh, 2004 to 2010 range. And what an experience. Uh, and I can remember when I got there, I was surrounded by my, my, my leadership team, my management team. And I basically looked at them and said, I really don't know what you do. And I'm not going to pretend to. I'm going to count on all of you to help me learn this business. And I, and I will learn it as quickly as I can. And I will support you as much as I can. But I'm, I'm depending on you because I, I'm not here to tell you what to do or, 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 or figure out, you know, that things aren't going the right way. We're just going to get better and grow. And I will get better and grow at the same time. So I had a great team. They tucked me under their arm. They carried me along. And uh, what a great experience that was, uh, learning to lead a, a group like that, uh, learning the sales business really for the first time. I learned that I, I love the people that are uh, strong enough and, and good enough to be in the sales part of this business. It's hard work. It's really hard. One of my board members gave me some great advice early on, said, uh, you need to go out and travel with your sales team because you won't have any credibility unless you've been out on the road with them uh, for a little while. And so I made it a point to go out and travel with my sales team, go to the conferences, spend the day on the road with uh, XYZ wholesaler. And I, I would get back from those days and just say, and I would say to the wholesaler, say, I don't know how you do it. I couldn't do this. You got to be on every meeting. You got to be on every phone call. So hard what you do. But it gave me such appreciation for the business that they do and how and the work that they do. It gave me real, really good education on on things that I needed to be thinking about from a leadership standpoint when I'm back in the home office um, trying to run the business. So great opportunity, uh, you know, and it, it, it really just, again, another one of those things that had you asked me a few years before if I would be doing, you know, running a large retail distribution business, I would have said, no, I don't know anything about it. What are you, what are you talking about? So uh, another, another, another fun thing to do in my career. My career has been very nonlinear, which I love. Yeah, it is. That is a, a wonderful path. A circuitous route to things is, I think, in at least in my opinion, such a great way to learn. If you're a lifelong learner and you like new experiences, it's a great way to have a robust career um, and to to tap different portions of your your skill set and and even um, to find maybe a passion in an area that one wouldn't know you had without that. I will suggest, though, that you've just made 27 really exceptional friends with all of the Salesforce at Touchstone who oh. really <laughs> now know that you uh, love and appreciate how difficult that job is. Um, I will agree, having been someone who wholesaled for a significant portion of the last decade, uh, I can tell you the other component to your travels, I, I assume, um, included you know, leaving the hotel at seven in the morning and not getting back to the hotel until 11 oh, o'clock yeah. at night. And so these really unusual hours that wholesalers work um, also can't be discounted. Well, like I said, I couldn't do it all the time. And that's that's uh, so I always have that respect for uh, for the job that they do, uh, knowing that I couldn't do it. <laughs> it's too too hard for me. 
we appreciate those comments in particular. So, uh, well, perfect. So then from um, Alliance, moved on to McKenzie, UBS, and then Forrester before Touchstone. Anything you'd want to touch on there as well? Well, you know, all of those jobs were different in their own ways. One of them, one of them I, was, I lived in Canada for three years and over three years in Toronto. So what a great experience to be outside of the U.S. and being being in the same business. But it, but as I like to say, the business in Canada rhymes, but it's not identical uh, to what we did in the U.S. Um, and so be, being able to bring my U.S. experience up to Canada, bring that in, but also learn from my Canadian colleagues the differences and the nuances and I, I really love my time up there. Met a lot of really, really good people up there. And then, you know, and then just similar roles, but with different nuanced leadership uh, obligations, working for a great big bank at UBS and, and being head of Americas for the asset management division with a, still a very strong dose of distribution. A, another really good experience for me. And then Forrester's was unique. Because at Forrester's, I actually, in addition to the asset management and mutual fund businesses that I ran, I literally had a wealth management business. So I, I had, we, I had uh, 400 financial advisors that were selling our funds and other funds, but that was part of the Forrester's business unit uh, that I was overseeing at the time. And so, you know, that was um, in many ways as close to the end client uh, as I've been in my career by having we actually financial advisors that were sitting at the kitchen table selling insurance and mutual funds to their clients. And I again, I would occasionally go out and, and, and travel or do meetings. And I'll, I'll never forget, you know, I had a uh, one of our financial advisors asked me to come up to his uh, client event that he holds every year. We has some of his best and oldest clients just come to a you know a very casual get together. This one happened to be he called it a paint and sip. So they actually were doing painting, right? They all had easels and they were doing painting with some art instruction. But there was also a lot of sipping going on of uh, of certain beverages, which made the evening go a lot better. But he had and so this was a financial advisor who had been a financial advisor for uh, I think thirty or thirty five years, and at that event. He had his very first client that he brought on when he was a financial advisor at the event. And he had, he probably had another 50 other clients there, but he asked her to speak. I still get emotional when I talk about it. She was a teacher, didn't, never made much money, teacher her whole life, you know, 40 plus years. And she had recently retired and she got up and basically talked about how she met uh, this financial advisor and what he had meant to her. And at the end, she said, look, had I not met this financial advisor, I would not have been able to retire. And so just think about the impact. So it just it's just amazing to think about the impact that we can have on people, that our financial advisors have on people, and that the things that we do, our products and and our mutual funds, Ultimately, those things can change people's lives. So what we do is important. We think about it as selling and sell more funds and sell product. But there's a reason for it. And there's a reason we do what we do. And it's, it's a good reason. It can really have a good impact on people's lives. And so maybe that's a good segue to the transition from Foresters back home with the hero of the story, your wife, to Cincinnati. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so the Forrester story ended, you know, oddly for me because I, you know, uh, 
I went in there with the idea that we were going to we were going to rebuild the firm and, and, and remake it over the course of five years. But a change in strategy, the, uh, the parent company decided to sell the business. So my job became figuring out how to sell the businesses that I was responsible for running. And we did that quite successfully. You know, serendipitously or coincidentally, or however you want to say it, one of the uh, businesses that w- showed an interest in Foresters was Western and Southern and Touchstone. In that process, I met several people on the executive team. And, you know, wouldn't you know, we stayed, you know, of course, a year passed because I was then involved in just selling the business and closing it and making the transition happen. But we stayed in touch. And as things worked out, this role, this leadership role at Touchstone was coming available with Steve Graziano's retirement. And uh, we talked it over and I said, I love the business, the business model, what you're doing, your growth goals. And so it was a great match. And uh, moving back to Cincinnati was just kind of icing on the cake. I have one family in Chicago, one in St. Louis. And so being in Cincinnati gives me a basically a five hour drive to either set of grandkids, which is uh, fabulous. So uh, really fun to come back. The business is uh, all I expected it to be and more. Uh, the team and the culture has been um, wonderful to become a part of. And uh, we're having really good success now. And our, our job is to keep that going and reach even new heights. And so you've been the chief executive officer and president of Touchstone during a pandemic. So do you want to talk to us a little bit about what that experience has been like to hire people and even talk to people on this particular podcast who you've never met in person? Yeah, well, first, yeah, that's funny. So first, I, I attribute most of my success at Touchstone to the fact that many people have never seen my face because I've only had a, I've had a face mask on uh, for the bulk of my time here at, uh, at Touchstone. So that's been a, definitely a plus. And yeah, it, it, people ask me that regularly. I drove up here in, in my car took an apartment. My wife and I have now bought a place in Hyde Park, but uh, in the middle of the pandemic and showed up the office, you know, it's basically me and two or three other executives on the floor wearing masks and doing WebExes all day long and, you know, meeting the sales team remotely. I've been so impressed with how everyone adjusted to the uh, different working conditions and situations they found themselves in uh, and, and not only didn't miss a beat, uh, but picked up a completely different uh, beat and rhythm to their business practice to make sure we stayed successful. You know, not many firms can say they had a record year during a pandemic. Uh, well, we just did. And that says a lot for the people uh, from the sales team all the way through the organization uh, making that happen. So very proud to be part of Touchstone and um, hopefully can do my part to help us uh, achieve even greater things. We've set our sights pretty high. I'm looking forward to all the things that we can achieve in the next few years. We are as well. And I think, you know, our success over the past year, in particular during the pandemic, really does speak to the commitment, the innovative nature and the high achieving um, type of output that our group at Touchstone um, has always been committed to. And so it's really great, I think, you know, despite the, the circumstances, that you've had a chance to get to know us in that, in that particular way. And so I always look on the bright side of things. And for me, I think the pandemic, as bad as it has been, has really provided us a, a strong opportunity to rethink some of the ways we've really always operated. And there will be some great lessons that we'll take going forward. But certainly, we're all really excited to be able to spend time with you in person. And it looks like, you know, at some point as we resume normalcy, that will happen. So with that being said, I am I have my own thoughts about why Touchstone is such a, a great place. 
who we are, what our values are, and what sets us apart from our competitors. But I'm curious to hear your through your lens um, how you view Touchstone and and how we fare or how we are set apart rather from our competitors. Well, I'll I'll separate it into two, I'll separate into two categories. One is just the the business and the business approach, and the other is the people. Right on the and on the on the business side, um, I was attracted to Touchstone because of the business model and the distinctively active approach to investing. I am a, I am a I'm a believer in active management. I can't help myself. I just think that smart people, uh, motivated, competitive people, uh, asset managers that know what they're doing will beat the market over time. Because you know what? The market is average. Remember what we talked about earlier? We talked about uh, being better than average and why I think that this, this, this business brings that out in people. So I, I'm a true believer in active management. I love the way Touchstone does it, the distinctively active approach to investing, how we uh, vet and hire our uh, sub-advisors to manage the different asset classes. Um, and so, you know, I'm proud to say my 401k and my IRA are now fully in Touchstone funds and, uh, and happy to have them there. The sub-advised approach, I think, is also a great part of the business model that allows us to pick and choose the exact asset managers we want for each asset class. That's really important. Um, it means we're not tied to one particular team for every single asset class. We go pick the best. So those th- those things are great. And that's, that, those are business model things. From a people standpoint, and this is not something I could really get until I got here. I mean, Steve Graziano and I obviously talked a fair amount before I showed up. And he, he talked warmly and lovingly about the culture at Touchstone. And I've had the benefit of working at several different firms and, and with, with really good cultures as well. But you know what? He was right. Uh, the culture here is unique. It's, uh, you know, collegial is a word that's thrown around really loosely at a lot of different organizations, but it is absolutely a word that applies here, collegial in all the, in all the best ways. People are constructively uh, challenging in their in their day to day work. Uh, they're supportive at the same time. They they look to uh, help their peers get better at what they do, um, and look every day to get better at what they do themselves. So love the culture, the people, motivation. It's all there. You know, I, I view it as a, you know, when you when you have that kind of culture and those kinds of people, if you give them the right resources and products and power to do their jobs, they'll, they'll, run, they'll run through walls for you. And uh, that's, that's largely what my job is, to make sure they have all that stuff to enable them to be as good as they can be. And so far, we've had that experience when we you know, have planned for our future growth and the resources that it'll take to get there. I can say personally, you're very supportive of making sure we have the infrastructure and the elements that are necessary to grow the organization. And so maybe that begs a question, you know, in terms of just the business model in general and active management, what do you think are the biggest opportunities for an actively managed mutual fund company? And then maybe conversely, what are the biggest challenges that exist today? Well, I think, look, from an opportunity standpoint, and it's an opportunity and a challenge at the same time, we really have to distinguish ourselves. You know, our, our brand says distinctively active. And it's one thing to say it, but we have to not only say it, we have to be it. And then we have to demonstrate it to people why it makes a difference. Why is it important to be distinctively active? Why should anyone care? And our our opportunity and our challenge is to show people why that really matters 
to the financial advisors and their clients in the long run for their financial well-being. We're better than active managers who are really closet indexers. That's our opportunity and our challenge. One of the things I, I loved about Touchstone, first of all, I'll be honest, hadn't heard about it until I was introduced to Western and Southern uh, when we were in the, uh, for, in the Foresters process. Market sh- our market share is, is you remember, I worked at, I, I sold, we sold PIMCO funds. You know, I had a whole set, we were, <laughs> the amount of volume that we were doing was stunning, even back then. Our market share at Touchstone is under 1%. What that says to me is that we, we, there are so many financial advisors out there that have no idea what we do and how good we are that our upside is almost unlimited. I mean, it's almost unlimited. We just, because when we get in front of a financial advisor and explain to them what we do and they understand what distinctively active means, how we implement that in our product lineup and what we can bring to them from a, a financial, from a, a a practice consulting standpoint, we win, right? We're going to win. We have so much upside, it's almost incalculable. Let's put it that way. So when I talk about us doubling our business over the next few years, uh, that is eminently doable. I agree. And, and I look at one of the main challenges that we face right now, especially as an actively managed shop, is that conversation around expenses and fees and really educating advisors on the difference between, you know, getting something that you're paying for versus paying little for something that you're not getting. And and we agree. I think it's that messaging and really educating advisors that's something that's really important to us. And of course, I take ownership in and the responsibility of really helping us get to where we need to be, assuming all of our products are great, which they are, and that we have access to the right advisors. For me, one component of that even beyond our business model, is the importance of helping um, wholesalers and, and individuals that touch on in general want to continue to build their career here. And I think what separates us from other firms is our ability to develop talent um, to to help um, wholesalers and, and individuals in the organization who are really strong performers and who have great potential to want to truly build a career here. And that starts with our parent company and filters all the way to us. When we look at those individuals that have much higher market share than others, it's really a tenure-based sort of scenario. And so I will completely agree with you and take the ownership to uh, make sure we have the right people and that we get ourselves to where we need to be going forward. So uh, appreciate that. So over the next 10 years, what are the biggest trends that you think are going to drive in the investment business in general? It's funny. I've been in this business long enough to remember. I've remembered so many consultant presentations that have been predicting the same thing now for the last for 25 years. <laughs> and, and to be fair, some of them have come have, have come true. But other things have just kind of it sounds like they're doing the same paper year after year and eventually it'll come true. So I don't think the next 10 years is going to be that much different than the last 10 in some key areas. One, performance is still going to really matter, right? Invest, investment performance is going to matter. If you're going to be in active space, you must outperform. You cannot be average. I think the passive bandwagon is very crowded and, and people are going to fall off and it's going to hurt uh, when some of the markets start uh, acting a little bit differently. You know, a 10-year bull market, it's pretty easy to be a passive investor when you're in a 10-year bull market. But I think it'll still be all about a struggle for alpha, who's able to produce it consistently and uh, in a way that's accessible to investors. There will continue to be a big struggle for assets. You know, there's there's just, as you know, this is a takeaway game. 
Yes, new assets come into the system every year because people are investing money, but the vast majority of the assets are already in, in play, right? You know better than I do that every single sale we make at Touchstone pretty much is taking assets away from another asset manager. That is not going to change over the next 10 years. In fact, I would say the competition is, is going to become even fiercer. Part of that is because there will be more, I think there'll be more consolidation. So, you know, you can only have so many firms and you've already seen it. How many firms can there be out there that just give you an index? You don't need that many. And they're all giving it away for free anyway. And there'll be more and more scale plays and consolidation in the business over the next 10 years, as we've seen. Look, I'd much rather be an acquirer than an acquiree. Uh, I've been on the other end of that. And then last, I, I think there will continue to be fee pressure. Uh, right? Because it's it's the passive active situation, it's consolidation, and it's more information to consumers. So people are really going to be much more demanding about what they pay for. Um, so there will be, continue to be fee pressure and margin pressure on asset managers. That makes scale important. Um, and uh, that, you know, that's that's not lost on me when I think about how we need to grow and, and how we want to become a, a bigger player and, you know, ultimately the strong are going to survive and grow and the average are going to fade away or be acquired. That's just how this business is going to work. It gets back. It's that whole competitive thing again. If you don't get better every single year, you're going to be average and average isn't going to last. So I know lots of leaders have really specific daily routines to keep them performing at their best. So we'll bring this full circle with performance. Um, what daily routines do you have that oh, keep you gosh. at the top of yeah, your boy. game as a leader? <laughs> Drives my wife crazy because I, I do, I am, I do, ha I am fairly routine on on some things. Um, yeah, I uh, I am definitely a morning person, and I, I attribute that in large part. Well, I blame my mom, of course, but uh, when I was working in San Diego, again, a side story. When I was working in San Diego in the asset management business, of course, you know, we were three hours behind New York, but guess what? The market's open when the market's open. And so our traders were at their desks and ready to go before six every morning. My boss, Nicholas App uh, Art Nicholas, who was the founder of the firm, was a portfolio manager at heart. So he basically, he was in, you know, he'd be in at five or 5.30 every morning. This is in San, San Diego time. And of course, being the competitive guy that I was, when I started the job, I thought it was important that I beat my boss into work every day. So, you know, I parked nearby him so I could see when I was getting there before he was and when he wasn't. And I, even though I don't think we ever talked about this straight up, uh, I think Art, Art didn't like the fact that I sometimes beat him to work. So we had this very unhealthy competition about how early we got to work. So, you know, we were getting... We were getting to the office at 4.45, 5 in the morning, and uh, it was just, you know, crazy. So I became a morning person. Um, and then, you know, for 15 years, I was going to work at 5, 5.30 in the morning. Um, now, part of my routine was at the end of the day, the workday there was 2 or 2.30, I'd go to the gym. And then I'd be home with my family for dinner, and I'd be out with my, my kids for their athletic events or their school events. And uh, a family dinner for us was a really important uh, part of the day. So then when I moved to the East Coast, I kind of had to flip the schedule on its head. So now um, I'm in the gym at five in the morning. Um, I guess I get that done early, uh, but every morning and then, uh, you know, come to work at eight or so and uh, put in a good day. 
always make sure I'm connected with what's going on in the industry and the news, and uh, and then and then really just try to keep up with my team and make sure everybody's you know get the pulse and make sure everybody's okay and and uh, stay connected. So that that's my routine. I try not to, I don't burn the candle at both ends. I am not a late person. If I do business dinners and I'm not done by eight thirty, it's 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 a bad bad scene. So, <laughs> so good, good to you know, know that. I'm, oh. I'm the person. I'm the, I'm the executive that will be uh, leading the leading the way to. Uh, it's it's time to call it. Have dessert and head home. That's <laughs> <laughs> good to know. All right, so maybe changing gears a little bit. I've really enjoyed getting to know you during the past year, and one of the things that I've learned about is your genuine passion for gender and diversity, equality in the workplace. Is this something that you've always been passionate about, or was this born out of your experiences working in the investment industry? I mean, how do we begin to solve for this in, a, in the asset management world, both maybe now and in the future? <laughs> well. Well, that's a big question, and uh, we could talk about that for, an, or I could talk about that for an hour. Um, let, let, let me, do, I'll, I'll say it this way. I think our, at least my journey, uh, learning about diversity and, and gender equity is, is a life journey. It's not something that you're born with. It's not something you flip a switch on. I've learned more about it all my life. I grew up in the South. I grew up in the South in the 60s. So I grew up in a, in a time when schools were still completely segregated in, in my hometown. I was fortunate enough to grow up with a fam- in a family where that was not deemed acceptable. And I was taught, I believe, um, many, many good lessons about um, how we are and, and how we think as people. Um, and then, as I've already, I've already mentioned, the uh, MVP in our family is my wife. Um, I, I married a very strong woman who's... Uh, been very successful in her own right and everything that she's uh, done as a person. And uh, so I've, I've learned continuously over the years, um, I hope, how to appreciate gender and racial diversity uh, more. I've been in situations where, you know, my time in the NFL, that was about as diverse a, a workplace as I'll get, at least from a, a racial standpoint. And then I'll fast forward to this industry. I I think that as an industry, it's no secret we don't do a great job from a diversity standpoint across the board. Uh, It's just one of those things that I think we is a challenge for us. And what I've learned is that if you're not intentional about things, they generally don't change. It's important to me. And the reason it's important to me, other than all the right human reasons that it's important, is that I do strongly believe that we are better as a business and better as a group of people trying to achieve a a vision if we have diverse, differing uh, ideas and points of view brought to the table to reach the best possible uh, decisions or conclusions. I I say it all the time. I'm I'm never the smartest person in a room, and that's especially true when I'm alone. And uh, and that and I, I amplify that by saying that when you're in a room with people, I want a lot of diverse opinions and ideas in that room. And if everybody in that room looks like me, I'm not going to get that. I'm a true believer that from a business standpoint, we're stronger with diversity. Yeah. And there's a lot of academic research that shows that companies that are more diverse and that have representation, you know, uh, even on their board in particular um, and in leadership roles have better output. So I think there there's definitely a correlation there. But then also, 
thinking about our industry in particular, how is it that we expect that we'll be able to meet the needs of these underserved groups who are excellent, you know, clients, women, diverse um, individuals, um, minorities, when we, we don't reflect those clients? I mean, how can right, we best we have serve to bring, them? We have to bring more people into the business that are going to be able to share values, share experiences, and, and bring that to those clients that are not, are not being served right now. You're absolutely right. Thanks to Blake for sharing his story on our podcast today, as well as his insights into his new journey with Touchstone. Until next time, I'm Mary Mock. Thank you for listening to Distinctively Active Investing. Learn all about Touchstone at www.touchstoneinvestments.com slash podcast. If you like the show, please share it with someone you know. We appreciate when you subscribe to the show and take the time to leave us a rating and review. Find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. I'm Blake Moore, and from all of us at Touchstone Investments, thank you for listening. Alpha is the portion of a fund's total return that is unique to that fund and is independent of movements in the benchmark. Investment return and principal value of an investment in a fund will fluctuate, so that investors' shares, when redeemed, may be worth more or less than their original cost. All investing involves risk. Performance data quoted is past performance, which is no guarantee of future results. The information provided is for general information purposes and is not investment advice. Opinions may change without notice based on economic, market, business, and other conditions. Please consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The prospectus and the summary prospectus contain this and other information about the fund. To obtain a prospectus or a summary prospectus, contact your financial professional or download and or request one at touchstoneinvestments.com resources or call Touchstone at 800-638-8194. Please read the prospectus and or summary prospectus carefully before investing. Touchstone funds are distributed by Touchstone Securities, Inc., a member FINRA and SIPC.